Hello everybody, I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, and this, drumroll please, is Last Week in the Church, the show relentlessly devoted to sort of reheating stale news and trying to make it appetizing by sprinkling some spice over it. Here's what we've got for you this week. The Pope's curious explanation of a resigned French archbishop will begin there. Then Pope Francis went to Cyprus and Greece to pitch peace, dialogue, and compassion, but was anybody catching? Third, we've got the Vatican star witness in its trial of the century implicates a new suspect, and was it really the Pope? Fourth, the strange case, the curious case, of a Spanish bishop who left the church for the woman he loves just gets curiouser. And finally, the EU backtracks on its much ballyhooed effort to cancel Christmas. That's what we've got for you this week, so please stick around. All right. Well, first of all, apologies that we're a little late getting the show to you this week, but we wanted to make sure that we had a chance to wrap up Pope Francis's visit to Cyprus and to Greece before we went into broadcast. And it's a good thing we did, because there's a great deal to talk about. Let's begin with the Pope's airborne news conference. Now, as you were probably aware, Pope Francis doesn't meet the press very often, and when he does, it's usually in these situations where it's a one-on-one -on -one interview with a hand-picked journalist who was going to ask the Pope, well, frankly, the questions the Pope wants to be asked. So these situations where he encounters the press as a group, and it's unscripted, they are quite rare, and they basically happen only at about 30,000 feet. From the very beginning, Pope Francis has adopted this custom that when he flies back to Rome at the end of a trip, he will conduct a press conference, uh, which leads to one of my favorite sound bites about this papacy, which is that in general, these trips are dreadful affairs. You pay business class airfare for coach accommodations. The, you know, the food is awful. The one thing I will give it is that the in-flight entertainment is spectacular because it's sort of evening at the improv with Pope Francis. And on this occasion, probably the most interesting bit of this brief news conference came with regard to the case of former French Archbishop Michel Opouti. He was the Archbishop of Paris. Recently, he submitted his resignation to Pope Francis after an expose in the French media, which essentially suggested that he was having an affair, a consenting affair, by the way, with an adult woman. Now, Archbishop Opatie has denied that this relationship was sexual, but nevertheless conceded that there were inappropriate elements to it, and said he was offering his resignation to the Pope, not really because he wanted to quit, but because he wanted the Pope to be free to do what he felt best. Many people felt, you will remember last week on this show, I had said that the, the smart money was that the Pope would not accept the resignation. There had been a number of other cases where bishops under fire had offered their resignations to the Pope, but Francis chose to stand by his man. However, in this case, it was the opposite scenario. The ink was barely dry on Opatie's resignation letter when it was accepted in Rome. Francis has appointed a temporary administrator for the Paris Archdiocese, and 
you know, presumably we'll get around to naming a successor sometime soon. So the obvious question at this press conference was, hey, what gives? What's the deal? And the Pope's answer was quite interesting. Essentially what he said was, look, what did Opatee do that's so bad? Okay, so he maybe violated the Sixth Commandment. That, of course, is the commandment against sexual morality. But he said, listen, it wasn't a complete violation. So there were some caresses, maybe some massages, but come on, uh, sins of the flesh are not the worst sins. And besides which, who among us isn't a sinner? So I am, you are. St. Peter, the, the first pope of the church was. He denied Christ. So, you know, back then, the Christian community was accustomed to the idea that their bishop could be a sinner. I said, you know, the problem today is that we put these guys on a pedestal and then we tear them down through malicious gossip. And he said, that's what happened in this case. That Opatee has been the victim of a kind of malicious smear campaign. Said he's been convicted, not in a court of law, but in the court of public opinion. And then Francis ended by saying, I accepted his resignation not on the altar of truth, but the altar of hypocrisy. Now, if you think about it, that is a fairly stunning thing for a pope to say, that, that he has made a decision not in the interests of truth, but in the interests of hypocrisy. And it, it leaves hanging the $64,000 question of, well, so why? I, I, look, I mean, it's not exactly like Pope Francis has a track record of kowtowing to public opinion. I mean, we all remember the famous case of Bishop Juan Barros from Chile, who was under fire for allegedly having covered up for that country's most notorious pedophile priest. There, were, there was a clamor for his resignation. Pope Francis pointedly refused to, accept, uh, to, to fire him or to accept a resignation. And in fact, he was caught on video telling people in St. Peter's Square not to be led around by the nose on this issue, not to, to cave in to this media drumbeat. And there are any number of other cases where Pope Francis has sort of defied public opinion or public expectations. So what gives in this instance? What, what makes the Opatee case different? And to be honest with you, I don't think anybody really knows. There is some speculation that perhaps Pope Francis wanted an opportunity to start fresh in Paris, that there had been some administrative missteps on Opatee's watch, and this was simply, therefore, a convenient excuse to make a, to make a change. Others think maybe there are more skeletons in the closet here that we simply haven't heard about yet. Point is, nobody really knows, and we don't know after this press conference, because to be honest with you, the answer Pope Francis gave would have made a lot more sense had he refused the resignation than it, given the, the circumstances that he actually accepted it. I think the only thing we can say is stay tuned. Now, this press conference, of course, came at the end of Pope Francis's five-day outing to Cyprus and Greece. And I, I think the consensus is that this is one of those trips that Pope Francis really wanted to make. This wasn't simply the, ch the Pope sort of checking a box on a diplomatic to-do list. Cyprus is a nation that has been lacerated since 1974 by this division between a Turkish-dominated North and a Greek-dominated South, and therefore is a classic laboratory for the Pope's message of reconciliation 
and overcoming the ghosts of the past. It also is a country that has been capsized by the migrant and refugee crisis that is very much at the heart of Pope Francis's concern. It's also a country where relations between Muslims and Christians and between Catholics and Orthodox are very important. Again, key concerns of Pope Francis. And in Greece, one can say much the same thing. Again, one of the epicenters of the migrant and refugee crisis. Pope Francis again visited the island of Lesbos, which has been a major point of arrival, if not the major point of arrival, for migrants and refugees from the Middle East and North Africa who are trying to reach Europe. And also a country, of course, in which Catholic Orthodox relations are incredibly important. And all along the way, Pope Francis was presenting a message which was, in a sense, kind of a greatest hits collection of his papacy. Is, 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 these were sounding boards, if you like, test cases for his core messages. So the message of inclusion, compassion, welcome, human dignity for migrants and refugees, messages about reconciliation and peace, about overcoming division with unity, messages about understanding between Christians and Orthodox, or Catholics and Orthodox, between Christians and Muslims. And the Pope, it was obvious that his heart was in this. It was obvious that he was engaged in delivering these messages. The question, however, is that that's what the Pope was pitching, but was anybody catching? Now, the answer to that, of course, is we don't know yet. It takes time to assess the fruits of any particular papal trip. But early returns would suggest some basis for skepticism. I mean, I think of Cyprus, where while Pope Francis was hitting all of these notes, his hosts, and I'm thinking particular in particular of the president of Cyprus who met with the pope at the presidential palace, and also the archbishop of Nicosia in Cyprus who met with the pope, during a joint service, both of them gave remarks which were not really about tolerance, inclusion, reconciliation. In both cases, they were catalogs of all the historic offenses that Turkey and the Turkish-dominated North had committed against the Greeks and the, the Greek-dominated South. And, and basically, what it boiled down to is we're right, they're wrong. When is somebody going to make them cry uncle? And whatever one assesses, however one chooses to assess the rights and wrongs of the historical claims these guys were making, they weren't exactly, I think, the, the kind of tone that somebody in the mood to let bygones be bygones would necessarily say. So, you know, we will see and, you know, from Francis's point of view, I suppose, the test really is not success or failure. The test is fidelity. And he was certainly nothing, if not faithful, to the message that he has been trying to deliver from the very beginning. But in terms of whether he changed any hearts and minds or rewrote history on the ground, that only time will tell. All right, back here in Rome, it's not like nothing was happening while the boss was out of town. There were new developments in the trial of the century. This is this mega trial the Vatican has launched 
at the beginning against 10 individuals and a handful of corporate entities, the number of defendants has been reduced along the way. But that bank of defendants for the first time includes a prince of the church, Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu, the Pope's former chief of staff. These individuals accused of corruption, graft, embezzlement, very basically any form of financial crime you can imagine. Most of it centering on a controversial $400 million land deal in London. Now, the key bone of contention in this trial from the beginning has been recordings of interrogations of witnesses and defendants in this case, which were made by prosecutors. Initially, only written transcripts were turned over. Then the court demanded the recordings. The prosecution refused. The court demanded them again. The prosecution turned them over, but in expurgated form with about two hours of cuts, the court has demanded the full versions. We'll see. The next hearing is scheduled for December 14th in terms of whether the, the full versions are turned over. But in the meantime, even those expurgated versions have been the object of careful examination, as you might imagine, by defense lawyers. And this week, while Francis was in Cyprus and Greece, one of Italy's major newspapers, Corriere, Corriere della Sera, sort of the New York Times, the, the paper of record here in Italy, published portions of these recordings, which includes the spectacular claim by the Vatican's star witness, Italian Monsignor Alberto Perlasca, the former head of the Financial Affairs Office and the Secretary of State, that at a key moment, in late 2018-2019, when the Vatican was contemplating trying to get out of this London deal and was considering what to do about one of the businessmen at the core of it, a guy by the name of Gianluigi Torzi, that Perlaska says there was an internal debate within the Vatican. Some wanted to denounce Torzi then, that is, file a legal complaint against him and wash their hands of the whole thing. Others wanted to try to buy their way out of the problem, negotiate with Torzi and pay him off, basically, to make him go away. Eventually, they decided to pay him off, and that led us to where we are now. What's explosive is that Perlaska claims that the guy who settled that debate was the boss. And when I say the boss, I'm not talking about Italian Cardinal Pietro Parolin, the Secretary of State. I mean Parolin's boss, Pope Francis. Now, at that point, the transcript shows that pro uh, Prosecutor Alessandro Didi protested, saying, no, hey, wait a minute. We went to the Pope and asked him this, and he said no. And I could doubt anybody, but I'm not going to doubt the Pope. Now, what's curious about that is that later, once this became public, Didi claimed there was no conversation with the Pope. He was relying simply on a public interview. But what all this raises is the question of, if it is true that Pope Francis himself made the decision to move ahead with this deal on the terms that we now know them to have been, can you really prosecute anybody for a crime for simply complying with a papal order? Now, of course, this will have to be adjudicated at the trial, whether it is actually true that Pope Francis did what Prolaska suggests he did, and if so, what the legal implications of that would be. But it is yet another indication, folks, 
that this trial, which was launched to great fanfare, as it was supposed to be the ultimate proof of the success of the Pope's financial reforms, proof that a new day of transparency and accountability was dawning, it is becoming increasingly dubious whether this trial is ever really going to get off the ground or just collapse under its own weight. As I say, the next, taste, uh, next test of that will be one week from today when the next hearing in the trial takes place in this special courtroom in, in a hall of the Vatican Museums that has been created to accommodate not the overflow crowds of, pu of the public, but the overflow crowd of defendants. And more to the point, there are 30 lawyers who are arguing this thing out. All right, we shift now to Spain and the already curious case of Bishop Xavier Novell. You may remember that a couple of months ago, Bishop Novell made the bombshell announcement that he was leaving the, his, well, he was leaving his job as a bishop, he was leaving his role as a Catholic priest, and he was leaving the church in order to be with the woman that he said he loved. And turns out that this woman has a rather storied background. She is uh, the author of what have been, I guess, semi-euphemistically described as erotic novels. I made the mistake recently of describing her as sort of the Danielle Steele of Spain. I, I was told that that is wrong, that while Danielle Steele is sort of elusive in her descriptions of what? Relationships, that apparently this woman is, is a good deal more explicit in her prose. Well, in any event, two recent developments on this front that have gotten eyebrows raised and tongues wagging anew in Spain. One, it turns out the woman in question is pregnant and reportedly is expecting twins. So, former Bishop Novell is soon to be the father of a growing family, apparently. And perhaps related, as the father of a growing family, he of course needs a way to support that family. Turns out uh, that he was trained as an agricultural engineer before he went into the priesthood. So he has sort of dusted off that aspect of his resume, and he has found work with a Spanish agricultural firm. Here's the interesting part. This firm specializes in artificial insemination. Not artificial insemination of people, mind you, but artificial insemination of hogs. It basically, its main product is hog semen in an effort to sort of breed the perfect hog. Now, let's be clear, the Catholic Church has no position on artificial insemination when it comes to hogs. So it's not like the ex-bishop is violating some codicil of Catholic morality. But what all this has done is put the Novell case back in the spotlight in Spain to the frustration of some observers of the Spanish ecclesiastical scene who frankly think there are more important things for the Catholic Church in Spain to be worrying about right now, including the sexual abuse scandals in the Catholic priesthood, which continue to blow up in Spain, 
Many people think that Spain may be next in line for a France-style bombshell expose of the history of clerical sexual abuse in Spain. Others think that the, the just basic state of the, the Spanish church, declining vocations, declining mass attendance, and so on, maybe is something that ought to galvanize more attention than the, the odd story of this one bishop. But nevertheless, it is an indication of how there is a kind of residual Catholic gene in Spain that, that somehow the vicissitudes of this bishop have sort of captured the public imagination in a way that it's difficult to imagine that the travails of an imam or a rabbi or an evangelical pastor would have. And, and perhaps that is some indication that somewhere beneath the, the apparent ash of the state of the Spanish church, there still is some fire that, that under the right set of circumstances could be translated into evangelical energy, we shall see. All right, finally this week, the European Union recently made some waves, which, by the way, is not easy for the EU to do. It's usually perceived as this big, vast, gray, bureaucratic blob. And people don't often pay attention to what the EU is or is not doing, to be quite honest. I mean, you know, when they issue a new set of tariffs on, I don't know, catching cod in the North Sea, you know, that's of interest to some fishermen, but, nah, you know, it doesn't exactly light up the evening news. But a few weeks ago, the European Union put out a new communications manual, which did raise some eyebrows hither and yon, because among other things, this communications manual suggested that in the interests of inclusion and non-discrimination, European officials, European offices, should not use the word Christmas. It's okay to refer to holidays or the festive period, but not Christmas, because, of course, that's specific to a particular religion. Other items? The, the EU, EU officials were not to use the terms Mrs. Or, mi, or, or Miss, because those were considered antiquated ways of referring to women, so they were to use Ms. Perhaps most curious of all, they were told to avoid names that were specific to a geographic region or a particular tradition, such as John or Mary. Now, how you're supposed to avoid use of those names when those are, in fact, the names of a lot of people in Europe was unclear to anybody. But it was the thing about Christmas that really attracted some attention and elicited a protest from no less a figure then Italian Cardinal Pietro Paterlin, the Vatican Secretary of State, who, I think, rather rationally pointed out that here's the thing, Christmas is an actual thing. It's, it's like a real thing that a lot of people celebrate. And as Paterlin put it, anytime you are in the position of denying reality, you're probably not in a good place. And further, Parlene pointed out that although Europe today is, of course, marked by the values of inclusion and tolerance, 
Europe also has a history, and a good part of that history is bound up uh, with Christianity and with the celebration of Christmas. And in point of fact, those values of tolerance and inclusion are the result of the Christian humanist tradition that is one of the bedrocks of European identity. All in all, Paroline suggested this probably wasn't such a hot idea. And in fact, in the end, this communications manual has been withdrawn. Uh, the EU put out a statement saying that in light of the concerns that have been expressed, it's being withdrawn for reconsideration. I don't know what that reconsideration could possibly amount to. I think reconsideration in this case functionally means abandonment. That is, it's being consigned to the ash heaps of history. But in any event, you know, we will see what comes. It, it is a reminder that there is a clash at the heart of contemporary secular Europe between, on the one hand, its desire to, to, well, essentially to not succumb to the kind of theocratic instinct that is, is part of Europe's history, that is the exaltation of one religious tradition at the expense of others, while, on the other hand, not being in the position of denying its own identity, denying its own history, denying its own past. That is a tension that has marked a great deal of European politics and jurisprudence for the last several decades. I suppose this case is a reminder that those tensions have not been fully resolved. At this point, however, at least for this Christmas, it appears you can still wish people a Merry Christmas in a European building and not be guilty of some kind of tort. All right, that is our show for this week. Thank you for being with us. We will be here next Monday, like clockwork. You can find full coverage of all the stories we have talked about on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. While you're on the site, you will find this nice and easy way to make a financial contribution to Crux. If you were so inclined, it would help keep us going. Remember, our independence is our most precious commodity, but it ain't free. We need your help to pay for it. Over the next seven days, here is my charge to you. Stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again soon.